0: This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.
1: October 1st is National Voluntary Blood Donation Day. The Ministry of Health and Family Welfare organized a massive drive starting from September 17th, which is Prime Minister Narendra Modi's birthday, all the way to October 1st. The campaign ran with the hashtag... रक्तदान अमृत महोत्सव। दिस इस यूनियन हेल्थ मिनिस्टर मंसूक मंडाविया, आफ्टर द्राइव ऑन अक्टूबर 1st।
0: एक ही दिन प्रधानमंत्री जी के जन्मदिन के अवसर पर एक लाख 88 हजार यूनिट ब्लड एकता किया गया, जो पहले का रिकॉर्ड था 87,000 यूनिट, उसको तोड़ के 1.1 लाख 68,000 आज, आ, but how do blood banks cope for the rest of the
1: year? There are 3,932 blood banks in the country for more than 700 districts. This is as per latest records. About 68% are privately owned. How do we ensure that there is safe, accessible and adequate blood in the blood banks? And what is our requirement for blood and what is the shortfall? Hello, I'm Menika Rao, host of this episode of the Suno India Show. To understand the universe of blood transfusions and blood banking, I spoke to Dr. Joy Mahman, Head of Transfusion Medicine at Christian Medical College, Vellore. Dr. Mavan led a major study commissioned by the National Blood Transfusion Council or NBTC on the clinical demand of blood in the country. This is the first time a study of this sort has been done. I will add the link in the references. Dr. Joy first gave an overview of the blood transfusion services and the regulatory framework in the country.
0: Broadly speaking, blood transfusion services in India has uh, been fragmented. Watershed moment was the 1996 PIL Uh, where there was Common Cause versus Union of India was taken to the Supreme Court. The problem was in the light of uh, increasing HIV, there was a sense that there wasn't enough blood safety measures put into place at that point. And so after the PIL, the Supreme Court made some decisions that uh, there should be a dual licensing pattern with the Central Drugs Control and the State Drugs Authority working together. Uh, They would look after the regulatory aspects and enforce the Act the Drug and Cosmetic Acts under which we are licensed. And the other half of activity, which is policy guidelines, blood safety, ensuring rational practice, uh, all that was left to NACO uh, because NACO was then newly formed and was very active in terms of controlling HIV. The actual functional unit of NACO, which looked after blood interests, was the National Blood Transfusion Council. So we had a dual Uh, regulatory slash operational supervision uh, for blood services in the country. So there were a lot of uh, crossover areas where authority and uh, provision was not clear and the blood services have suffered for that uh, ever since this dual pattern was set up. But regardless, there was some activity and some effort towards blood safety and we would report, we would do dual reporting from a blood center's perspective. We would send monthly reports to the drug controller And we would also send monthly reports to NACO through a software uh, which was funded through the NACP program, the National AIDS Control Program. Uh, Subsequently, the licensing operation would be undertaken by the drug controller. And every five years, we had to apply for a license and get it renewed periodically. So that's the kind of overview of what happens. The number of blood centers have proliferated over the last five years. And that's really not good for the country because now we're trying to control processes and ensure quality over a larger and more distributed number of locations. Because we're under the drug controller's purview and under the Act, we're supposed to be compliant and there are regulations to which we should be compliant in terms of infrastructure, documentation, quality assurance, and all the personnel who are actually registered in the license to practice over there. There is a shortage of cadre in various levels, starting with the medical officer down to the technician. Uh, it is challenging to find people to retain them at uh, for long terms in blood centers. So that is all, the human resources side is also a challenge constantly ongoing. There is no separate cadre for blood transmission services. So especially in the government sector, technician can be moved in and out of blood centers to wherever the need is. So one day they might be in a dengue program or a TB program, then they can be posted equally well into the blood bank uh, just as well. So there are various challenges at different levels at, uh, in terms of all the operational issues. For many years the system has talked about hub-and-spoke operation because we cannot sustain this proliferation of blood centers. I mean, I don't think any other country in the world has as many blood centers as we have. Uh, and so there's, there were conversations about a hub and spoke model. We need to review and look at our, uh, the drug and cosmetic acts in, in that context. But it is certainly possible that every small blood center need not be collecting blood and screening and testing and processing it, which makes it a very expensive process. Rather, they should be able to supply blood to whoever requires it. And, In the legal framework, there is this entity called a blood storage center or a blood storage unit, uh, which is envisaged to do exactly that. So they are linked to mother blood banks. They should be able to take blood from the mother blood bank, utilize it, refresh their stocks. And that was the the system's solution to ensure accessibility. So every CHC could have one or every small hospital could have one, but the uh, blood bank operation the blood collection screening testing operation should happen perhaps only one place in a district or two places in a district but uh, we have really not been able to implement that kind of a solution in our country yet we must also remember that running a blood bank is expensive you know to keep the cooler on and to keep the air conditioning on keep the upkeep of the blood bank so if you collect blood it has a shelf life and it will get thrown out at the end of the shelf life and uh, you should maintain it at ideal cold chain Uh, temperatures during that whole lifetime of that blood unit. If you don't, then there are quality issues which are going to trouble you at the end of it. And then, of course, we have to look at geographic areas of access, people who have problems. I mean, the distance might, as the crow flies, might be 10 kilometers, but we have places in the Northeast. I work with certain groups in Nagaland and in other places where distances are crazy, you know. As the crow flies, it might be one or two hours, but as the roads go and as bad roads go, sometimes it takes 8 and 10 hours to transit certain places. So uh, how do we offer uh, blood support to those places?
1: Can you help me with trying to make us understand uh, the recent study that you uh, did on the clinical demand and supply of blood in India? Based on that study, uh, you also provide like the different kinds of ailments and different conditions where there is more uh, demand for blood.
0: We undertook the study because of a request from the NBTC. There have been frequent questions to ask what is the actual requirement for blood in the country. And uh, these terms are used interchangeably and rather loosely. So one of the things that we did in this paper was to define different terms. So number one is need. And need is actually a term which is uh, the kind of the whole universe of requirement of blood. It is dependent on the morbidity patterns that you see in a society or a community and the disease prevalence over there. And uh, it actually is dependent upon what are the conditions that cause a deficiency of blood or a need for transfusion. The demand for blood is the clinical demand for blood is what happens when a patient who is in need of blood goes to a clinical services, accesses healthcare is assessed and then there is a clinical decision to transfuse. So you'll understand that there is a world, there's a universe of people who might have various diseases and conditions which require blood, but not all of them are going to be able to access healthcare for various reasons. It might be geographic access, financial access, difficulty in finding a place to go to or health seeking behavior of the community at large. So for all those reasons, all of the need does not automatically get translated into demand. And in this paper that we published in PLOS, we are actually looking at demand, which meant that we are only looking at the proportion of people who managed to reach a healthcare facility for whom it was determined that blood was required for transfusion. And so that is clinical demand. And then there is supply and utilization uh, patterns that we have determined from the study. We did it as a national study. We segmented the country into four uh, five regions, north, south, east and northeast and we took representative states uh, randomly from each region, and we studied 251 healthcare facilities with 51,562 beds. Based on our statistical uh, extrapolation for the whole country, we had determined that the total demand for the country is going to be 14.6 million units of whole blood. We found that uh, majority were uh, demanded by medical specialties, which was about 41%. That was followed by surgery at 27.9%. And then obstetrics and gynecology at 22%, majority of which was for obstetric and then pediatric population of about 1.2 million units was what was demanded for transfusion. And the clinical conditions per se, we still find that uh, the largest proportion of uh, patients in medicine, the request was for nutritional anemia about a third, almost 32% of demand among medical specialties was for nutritional anemia. That was followed by renal failure and gastrointestinal bleed and then certain other infectious diseases. Among surgical side, it was mostly orthopedic surgeries followed by abdominal surgeries and then trauma followed by cancer surgeries. In obstetrics, anemia and pregnancy still continues to be the highest reason for demand requesting blood for transfusion. just just over 34 percent and then that was followed by postpartum hemorrhage and uh, intraoperative needs for cesarean section for postpartum hemorrhage and then abnormal uterine bleeding was the third most common reason. Among pediatrics we found that the pediatric proportion of demand was very small just about 8.5 percent which itself I think is a reflection of possibly the it reflects the level of care available and access to care available in the country. But in this, the largest constant use was for uh, patients with hemolytic anemia. And that is understandable because they are a group which constantly requires transfusions and top-up transfusions. And so that does, um, although there are belts in the country where anemias, thalassemias and other hemoglobinopathies are prevalent, uh, they continue to be the most significant proportion of Users for thalassem for transfusion, and that is followed by nutritional anemia. So, in all groups, you know, all cohorts, we found that nutritional anemia is still a significant driver for transfusion. The other interesting thing we found was that uh, if we t- translated that into demand per bed, the average crude uh, clinical demand was nine uh, units per bed. And if you adjusted for bed occupancy rate, it went to about 11.2 units per bed per annum. So as a rule of thumb, if you had 100 bed hospital, you should uh, try to estimate at 11 units per bed per year as your requirement for blood. So that's the essential summary of the the study. And our conclusion was that there's about a million units shortage. Uh, This is based on the NACOS data for that year as to what they had collected and supplied so that million units uh, is not an insurmountable gap uh, if we step up a little bit more on the voluntary blood donation gap and if we manage component production from all the units that we collect.
1: I asked him, what are the adverse effects of anemia and when do people require blood transfusion urgently?
0: Anemia essentially is is a term used to define the fact that you have less hemoglobin or oxygen carrying capacity in the, uh, in the body. So if you have less hemoglobin, then the natural corollary of that is that you are going to have less oxygen carrying capacity out. So where does that translate into? It translates into reduced energy. So the symptoms can be just tiredness and weakness at the early stage and it's very non-specific. When when it's a mild anemia with about 10 grams, 8 grams, 9 grams hemoglobin, it's just that the person feels excessively tired, they can't take on extra activity, they feel unusually tired and have to pause and take rest. The next level is where, when they exert themselves, they find themselves to be breathless and not able to uh, do activities of normal uh, daily living. And that is when the anemia is becoming moderate. In severe anemia, which is like plus than six grams per deciliter, the person um, will not be able to undertake activities of usual daily living. They might be just um, feeling tired all the time, feeling uh, lackadaisical and they just want to sit down or rest all the time. Now, the problem with anemia is that it's like that frog in the boiling pot. If you gradually raise the temperature, the frog does not realize that it's actually boiling. So anemia which is gradual which is of gradual onset does not easily change the activity and the lifestyle of the person the person progressively reduces activity to compensate for their level of anemia and so then the the slope is gradual and they will become conscious only either when they try to exert themselves more than they usual or there is some additional stress at that point in time so if they have a If they have been gradually decreasing the hemoglobin, it reached 7 grams, 6 grams, and then suddenly they had a severe bleed, had an ulcer and had a bleed, then they can decompensate. A good example is like patients who have uh, chronic renal failure. Uh, Many of the patients with chronic renal failure survive quite well at about 7 grams hemoglobin between 6 and 7.5 grams of hemoglobin because they've been gradually reducing the hemoglobin. Their lifestyle also becomes adapted to that and their body becomes adapted to that but any kind of stress if they chose to go into high altitude at that time then certainly they will decompensate or if they chose to suddenly they needed to make a rush to catch a bus or run to catch a train then those kind of uh, exertions can also decompensate them rapidly and then they are at risk at that point in time with pregnant women it is slightly different because uh, now they are trying to uh, have a fetus inside which is consuming and also maintaining their own requirements for oxygenation. So, their challenge is double. And so, that's why it is a risk um, if the hemoglobin falls below 7 and 8 grams. And so, we want to keep them healthy. We want iron to increase. And there are other problems with iron deficiency in terms of development of the fetus and uh, neuro Uh, psychiatric uh, development of the child, of the baby as well. So we need to keep the iron and folate levels at acceptable levels so that both the mother and the child have adequate time and oxygenation.
1: Replacement donations are most common in India. Replacement donation is when a patient's relative is asked for an eligible donor in replacement of the blood that is given to the patient. You must have seen WhatsApp forwards or Twitter SOS calls on how someone urgently needs a donor. That is usually replacement donation. What is also done commonly in hospitals is a kind of triaging where the most quote-unquote needy patient is given blood without replacement, whereas all others are asked for replacement donation. This system is very haphazard. Dr. Joy says that while some level of triaging is expected, most of the problems related to blood transfusion, boiled down to lack of adipid stock. The whole country knows that replacement blood donation is a norm, right? You have written, I, have, I saw a few papers on, you know, why voluntary non-renumerated blood donation is the safest. Can you explain this?
0: The fundamental logic is like this. We want to reduce risk to the patient as well as to the donor. So we have a process of screening donors and we have certain standard checklists that we use to exclude people who might be at potential to pass on harm to a patient on the one hand. So when we have a pool of donors and they've answered in the negative for all, which means they are not uh, having high risk behavior in terms of sexual behavior, they're not abusing IV drugs and all those conditions which can potentially keep have them at risk for. Uh, transmitting infections. Uh, This is assumed to be a safe set of donors. Now, we all know that uh, at the end of this uh, interview process, we have a time when we will collect blood and we are going to test the blood for certain transmission, transmissible infections, which we will refer to as TTIs, which is hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, malaria and syphilis, uh, which are tested for at the baseline level in our country. There are different types of tests. And sensitivity and specificity can vary depend upon the platform that you're testing and the type of test that we're using. Because we are screening donors, our aim is to weed out any possibility of transmission of infection. So we try to identify tests that are very sensitive. And current, today's requirements are, it should be 99.9% sensitive, which means out of every thousand, I might miss one. But out of every hundred, I should not ideally miss any uh, sample which is positive. That's an ideal world and sometimes in reality things vary, depends upon the antibody levels in the patient or the antigen levels in the patient, in the donor whom you're testing, sorry, not the patient, and the, the type of the test, the quality of the testing process and all those variables come into place. There is also this question of window period that is often discussed and window period talks about the time from the initial point of suspected infection or the exposure to the disease to the time that your test is able to detect it. So the window period changes depending upon the type of test that we are doing. So in different types of diseases, there are different window periods based upon the testing platform that uh, one uses in their blood center. At the minimum, we should be doing serological testing with ELISA The issue comes when you have somebody who is infected and either chooses not to tell you the truth at the point when you ask them or they are unsuspecting themselves and then donate blood and your test is not able to detect it because of its own limitations. Suppose uh, uh, an ELISA has a window period of 25 days and we know that uh, somebody who's infected within the last 15 days might not be detected by that test. So with this iterative testing, your pool becomes more and more negative. So they remain safer. As you repeat testing, we found that voluntary donors have a safer risk profile. Uh, they, they do not have promiscuous sexual behavior. They have single partners. Uh, they usually do not abuse drugs. Uh, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. We do not know whether their are safe status is actually a reflection of their good practices or vice versa. But in any case, we found that uh, voluntary donors have a lower risk profile and are found to be healthy. And as you do this iterative testing, we find that we are excluding people from, those who are potentially positive are excluded from the pool. And so therefore, the safety of the pool improves. Uh, So that's how the pool becomes uh, safer. The other side of it is that you should remember that only people who have completed 18 years can donate and people who are less than 65 years. And so there is a limit on the Uh, on the population pyramid itself there are people who are aging who will leave the eligible group of donor population so the pool constantly needs to be replenished paid attention to for which we do not have a good program in the country so therefore unless you have a structured way of assuring voluntary donors coming in on a regular basis it is always a challenge to maintain inventory blood which is available in the blood center, which can serve in the time of an emergency. It's really not, uh, let's go and find a donor, let's screen them, let's collect, let's test, and then give the blood. That really takes time, you know, and if it's an emergency need, no patient can wait that long if it's a true emergency and it's a life-threatening situation. So it is important to have a a, a pool of regular donors. And unfortunately, uh, it is we don't pay enough attention to it and that is a grouse among uh, many of the blood center staff or, or the the groups which work with blood the thing is that if you thought about it uh, blood is considered as a drug you know and that's why we are under the drug and cosmetic acts uh, in the if you thought about it as a pharma industry the pharma industry person when they're starting to develop some drug or planning to manufacture some drug the first thing they want to make sure is that they have enough of the active principle, they have a definitive pathway which is assured, they will secure that pathway, they will buy enough stock of the drugs and make sure it is of the best quality. Here, unfortunately, in the blood center, we are left to the devices of and goodwill of human beings to donate. And so there is no way to assure that day-to-day or month-to-month, there will be enough blood which is being supplied. And it is left to the community to organize this. There's really no um, no structured way of collecting blood. It is absolutely left to the goodwill of the people who, want, who choose to come in and donate, which is why replacement donations still continue to proliferate in our country. In other countries, in the West, for example, there is a, a culture of giving and altruism. Not that it doesn't exist in our country, except that it is... Less widespread and needs more nurturing. Even in our hospital, uh, the clinician speaks to the patient and says that you should go down and donate some blood because we'll need blood. And we are really dependent significantly on replacement donations. I can be honest about that. But when the donor arrives in the blood center, they have that that connection has not happened. So they come into the blood center. And they walk up to the counter and say, okay, where do I pay? It's almost as if it's like a pharmacy or like a lab test. Where do I pay? The doctor has said, I need to get two units of blood. It's almost as if they have come to pick up the blood and go back to transfuse for the patient. So the first shock is when we say, no, the reception area is in that room. Please go and meet the social worker there. That's when the first shock comes in. Oh, am I expected to donate blood? And then we have to go through that, overcoming that shock and then talking to them and... Uh, assuring them of our support that they need to help us out to donate. So, the lack of this conversation is telling in our society, you know, and uh, we really need to think about it more than just a blood transfusion immediate uh, situation. I think there has to be a larger conversation. We should, uh, people who work in sociology and uh, the social sector and uh, those kind of areas should be, I mean, this is a huge area for research in our country. Our attitude to giving, our attitude to charity, our attitude to altruism. Why do people give? How do we convince people to give? Uh, this whole question of social marketing, you know, of uh, trying to sell an idea to change behavior for community, for common good, uh, it's a huge challenge. And those of us who work in blood transfusion services are uh, are all practically all from a science background. And we have one or two social workers who get harassed all the way every day. So I, I really feel sorry for them because blood transfusion and donation is a community responsibility. It's not one social worker's responsibility to go and find donors for everybody. So unless we take ownership for it, it's not going to go anywhere. You know.
1: I asked him what is the difference in the culture of blood donation in other countries? How do other countries maintain adequate stocks of blood?
0: So I have had some exposure to Australian blood services and uh, to the US where I briefly worked for a short while. Um, For the the most part, um, they are dependent on the community volunteering to donate. Uh, Which is why I said we need to study our own society's attitudes to altruism and giving because uh, I, I perceive there is a difference in the models of charity and giving in our communities and their communities. I don't have hard evidence for this. I'm trying to do some reading because I also found that uh, unless we understand that we will just keep on banging our heads on the wall, we can send SMSs, we can conduct short campaigns and then we it's like band-aid on the on the big wound like it can temporarily staunch the flow of blood but eventually it might need surgery, it might need radical thinking which we are not willing to invest. All this costs cost money. I was at, uh, uh, I visited the New York Blood Center recently. They're one of the largest uh, blood suppliers for the whole East Coast of the US, all the way from kind of just south of Connecticut down to, uh, I think up to Washington they supply. They had about 90 people who are just looking at going out and talking to uh, communities and ensuring that they are staying in touch with communities that donate, uh, engaging with donors uh, increasing awareness making sure they reach out to new common communities and bring them in into the into the fold of donations uh, so it's not so much as walk-in most of them run through scheduled donation camps so they have either a mobile camp or they do camps at uh, dri- donor drives they call them at fixed locations where people yeah. can book a slot go and donate and come away in all in all of Australia, I think there are only some four centers where they actually process blood. But you can walk in any city and donate any day that you choose to because the Red Cross is there waiting to collect blood from you. So we don't have to have, we have to delink the processing part from the collection part and invest enough in the awareness and collection angle of it and then reduce the number of places where processing happens. And then you improve quality and invest large vo- in large volumes which run 24 by 7 but it is a matter of inculcating this into the conversation and allowing it to become part of our routine practice. If you travel through a city, you will see billboards talking about preventing tuberculosis, HIV, giving out condoms, coughing, cough etiquette and how to access drugs for TB or to screen for TB and sexually transmitted diseases. But nobody talks about blood donation as being a healthy practice and that we should all be donating blood whenever it is possible for us to donate. And that, is, that still remains a challenge. Most of the time, a person is faced with this decision when his loved one, his parent, child, brother, sister or dear friend goes to a hospital, has a medical condition and needs blood. That's when people are faced with this. It's usually in a crisis situation. So it's not a good opportunity to introduce something to a person in a crisis mode. Unfortunately, that normal conversation is lacking in our system. Sometimes there is one camp in a year, uh, hundred children donate, and the rest of the 5,000 in the college are left untouched. So there are many gaps in our system that need to be addressed. And then after the donor donates, we need to continue to engage with them. You know, it's not like we, oh, thank you for your blood. We'll see you after six months again. Or we'll see you after four months. Uh, that should not be the attitude. We should continue to stay in touch with them. Uh, engage with them, keep in touch, greet them on their birthday or their special day and make it a kind of a a, a healthy social interaction. So and all this costs money and so we come to the last part which talks about uh, how do you pay for this whole system to be supported. In our system there is a cap on how much we can charge for uh, recovery of processing charges in the blood center and there is a cap on it which I think was revisited about a year or two ago, but it was a meager increase. It barely has not even kept up with inflation in our country. But unless somebody invests, we are not going to see the results of this. And it may not be the blood system which has to invest. It may be our social sector which needs to invest in this. And uh, blood donation is really not a very, you know, it's not attractive, it's not emotive, except for the person who's dying for lack of blood. Whereas things like cancer care, all these things have are always c- grabbing headlines and a lot of people willing to invest and there's a lot of emotion around it. So unfortunately, although we are critical parts of modern medicine, be it surgery, be it cancer care, be it transplantation science, unfortunately, we kind of get left behind in this whole conversation. And that's a, a sad thing.
1: Like Who do we hold responsible if a patient comes and there is no blood in the bank. I know there are no easy answers to this.
0: Yeah, so the the blood policy states that yes, it is a responsibility of the state to, uh, to provide blood. But uh, like I said earlier, uh, this is not the typical drug, you know. Uh, what can the state do? Can the state mandate that everybody turn up and donate blood? It is a challenging area. At best, what the state can do is, I think, help out by... Uh, running a campaign. So uh, it is a very difficult situation trying to convince somebody to come in and donate for uh, no perceivable immediate gain. You know, why would people invest something? Why would people give away money? It's because there is always a return on these things. Which is why I said, we in the clinical sector are not the best uh, best trained to approach this problem also. All of us approach it from a science problem. There's no blood. Ask people if they donate. Okay, you get the don- donation in. But actually, this is a human story. No? It's, a, it's a story about people being sensitive, people being engaged, people feeling the necessity to give without personal gain. What would uh, what would I feel at the end of it? I'd feel satisfaction, but... Uh, how, how do i sell that idea to somebody else like so that uh, it is not an easy question that you are asking who's responsible we are all responsible the government is responsible the government is responsible to the effect that uh, to the extent that they can regulate they can say that okay you have to fulfill these norms but where do the donors come from we need to invest in them finally it all boils down to who will pay for this and who will invest in this so that we ensure ourselves are safe Uh, donor community Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app Download it now